we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies and the host of our podcast. On today's episode, we're going to have George Fishman, who for a long time, very long time, was a Republican counsel on the House Immigration Subcommittee. So he has extensive institutional knowledge and has been through multiple bouts of legislating on immigration. Then for a couple of years was in the general counsel's office at the Department of Homeland Security and is now a manny for his kids. And I insisted that he wear pants when he come in. You can't see the video, but I assure all listeners that he is, in fact, wearing pants. And George is going to tell us a little about how he got into this business, what he's seen over the past, I don't know, at this point, it's almost 30 years, I think. And, uh, you know, and we'll see. So, George, thanks for coming in. Why don't you just tell the folks, how do you get into this? Actually, tell me, because I only know some of the background. How'd you get into this to begin with? Well, Mark, thanks so much for inviting me on. It's my pleasure. I was on the House Judiciary Committee for over 20 years and immigration subcommittee. And by far the most frequent witnesses we ever had at hearings when we were in the majority and could choose most of the witnesses were people from the Center for Immigration Studies, whether you or Steve Camerata or Jessica, Jessica Vaughn, David right. North. You guys were really the gold standard in terms of doing the research, undergirding a lot of the arguments and feelings and beliefs about immigration that my bosses believed in. And uh, I had the great privilege of working for four unique chairmen, unique statesmen in their own very peculiar ways, Lamar Smith and Jim Sensenbrenner, Bob Goodlatte, and... Henry Hyde, right? And Henry That's Hyde. That's how you got into this. Uh, yeah. in fact, these were chairman of the yeah, whole fact, judiciary committee. I wouldn't have done any of this had it not been for Mr. Hyde when I got out of law school. I came to Washington, and out of the goodness of her heart, Mr. Hyde, then administrative assistant, later to become his wife, before he passed away, Judy Wolverton gave me a paid internship, which, you know, was a lot less common then than it is now. And, and you uh, were from Chicago, and he was a Chicago congressman, too. So there was a connection, or did it just was that just coincidence? I think towards the end of law school, I went to my local congressman's office, expecting them to roll out the red carpet for me, and, you know, here's your office, you know, here's the job. And I got some of the best advice from a staff member there, not advice I wanted to hear at the time, but really good advice, which was find the member of Congress from your state, Illinois, who you most admired and do anything to start working for them, you know, intern, whatever, which is, which is what I did for Henry Hyde. And again, Judy was kind enough to put me on the payroll. And after a few months there, went to the Department of Interior for about a year in the solicitor's office. 
And then the legislative and this was went, when roughly this was 80, uh, 88, 89. Okay. Really dating me there. <laughs> but, <laughs> <I> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was one of the last placements of the Reagan administration. And after about a year there, the legislative council position in Mr. Hyde's office came open. And so I went back to his office and had a wonderful about six years there working for Mr. Hyde. Not working on immigration, though, specifically, or, uh, or just no, about everything? only a, a little, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit. It was, uh, it was, you know, Judiciary Committee issues. Right. You know, other than the 1990 Act, that was, of course, pretty big. Other than that, not, not too much immigration. Lo and behold, we took over the House in 95, 94 well, 94 elections election, right. for 95. And given my substantial lack of background in immigration— Alan Coffey, who was going to be the chief counsel of the committee for Mr. Hyde, I told him, because it was assumed I would be moving over to the Judiciary Committee staff, Alan, put me anywhere other than the Immigration Subcommittee. <laughs> and I think as sort of a cosmic joke, he decided, uh, yeah, why don't I put you on the Immigration Subcommittee? And in retrospect, I'm eternally grateful for him for doing that. It's been a fascinating career working with wonderful people, including yourself, and, uh, you know, a lot of frustration. We've all had a lot of frustration over the years about not being able to get things enacted that we wanted to, but it's been a wonderful experience. As I think Robert Bork infamously said during his uh, confirmation hearing for the Supreme Court, I'd want to be on the Supreme Court because it'll be an intellectual feast. This has been an intellectual feast, but it's also been dear to my heart. And so in retrospect, appreciate that. And that's how I got on the committee. So yeah, that's interesting, because I thought you had already been on the immigration subcommittee when I started, because because I started Mm -hmm. at CIS Mm -hmm. in February of 95. So basically, you predated me only for about a month or so is what it seems like. Exactly. So we've been doing this the same, almost exactly the same amount of time. Yeah. And that, that that's when we met. Right. And, um, and Cord- you know, Cordia was chief counsel, right? Yeah, Cordia, Cordia Strom, Strom, chief right. counsel, Ed Grant, mm-hmm. uh, David Lehman. Oh, okay. David Lehman was actually in Lamar Smith's personal office right. at the time, but he was also intimately involved. It was being thrown into the fire because Lamar Smith wanted to fundamentally restructure our immigration laws right off the bat. And so 95, 96 was the preparation, the writing, and the pushing forward of what became the, uh, and the Immigrant, Immigrant Responsibility, Responsibility Act, Act of yeah. <laughs> IRA-IRA, Ira, 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 yeah. 1996. Which, by the way, was based on the Jordan Commission recommendation substantially. We actually have had a recent podcast talking about the sort of continued relevance of those, but that was when the Jordan Report, Jordan Commission Report came out, and when Congressman Smith and Senator Simpson used a lot of that report to craft the legislation that they pushed in 95 and 96. Oh, we, we certainly did. And, and Barbara Jordan testified for us during the, the run-up to that legislation. I think one of the things I'm most proud of doing over the years on the committee was drafting what is now the E-Verify system that was based on a recommendation of the Jordan Commission with a lot of collaboration with John Lampman, who was then Lamar Smith's chief of staff. But yeah, th- that was based on the Jordan Commission's recommendations. You know, there's a lot of speculation. Had she not unfortunately passed away in the midst of that, we very well might have gotten the legal immigration reforms yep. that Lamar Smith had proposed enacted into law. And might not be in the pickle we are in today, quite honestly. I mean, it's not as though 
we wouldn't have still had immigration problems because the political forces are still there. But if we had enacted the legal immigration reforms, we'd be in a very different place today. If we had done that, if we had also done what was Lamar Smith's original hope was mandatory verify, and right. we had to do it as a pilot, voluntary pilot program to get it through, had those two things been done, the world might look very different. Yeah, yeah. Very different today. But yeah, so that was 95, 96. So I don't want to just do old home week because oh, for sure. a lot of people, I mean, I can see them. It's like, okay, well, they're going to be going on to the next podcast. But yeah. this is relevant because you've been through really, I guess, three big, I mean, at least at the subcommittee, three big mm. legislative rodeos, kind of the one in 95, 96 that was based on the Jordan Commission, and then 2005, 6, and 7, mm. which was the McCain-Kennedy Act or whatever, and it took various forms. It was all under George W. Bush. And then the Gang of Eight, which started in the Senate, but still it was, you know, and it died in the House. And so you were still involved in that. So that's three major immigration sort of bouts of legislating, some of which produced something, some which didn't. It sort of sounds like a, a bout of a coughing fit or yeah, something, well, exactly, something of that yeah, nature. Or tuberculosis or something, <laughs> maybe leprosy. So what were the differences between those? Did you learn anything? Does the experience of any of those legislative wrestling matches, does that have anything to tell us for today? Had I known then how difficult it would be back in 95 to get major immigration legislation enacted into law, had I realized it happens every decade or two, my mindset would have been quite different. I think the last truly major significant piece of legislation I was involved with that got enacted, you know, was... 2005-2006, the Real ID Act, the Secure Fence Act. I remember uh, in 2018, when we were advocating for Chairman Goodlatte's immigration reform legislation, one of my pitches to Republican LAs was exactly that, you know, 2005-2006. And then, you know, my wife sometimes would ask me, hey, George, what have you been doing the last decade? So guys, <laughs> throw me a bone. That didn't necessarily, well, Proof is in the pudding. The bill did not pass. So yeah, but not by I that much. I mean, it exactly. only came like 20 short, something like that well, in the House. Well, you know, had there been more support from the administration, it very well, and leadership. And leadership and in the leadership. House. I mean, President Trump, I mean, I actually asked him personally about this, the one of the only times I've met him, and he blamed Paul Ryan for having kind of undercut. Now, you know, the Trump has a tendency to blame everybody but himself. I mean, clearly the White House bore some responsibility, but Ryan did offer that alternative version, right? So that members could vote for that one that didn't do much and also didn't pass and still cover themselves politically. Exactly. Had members not had a chance to have a cover vote on right. a second bill and, you know, were given a choice, this is the train, this is the reform, take it or leave it. It very possibly might have passed the House. Bringing it back to 1995-1996, it was under Chairman Goodlatte, we went to some meeting with Speaker Ryan, obviously immigration-related, walked into the meeting, Speaker Ryan, Paul Ryan comes up to me. So this is in 2018? Yeah, tw yeah. Right, okay. George, remember when we debated back in 1996? <laughs> and to be honest, I had no recollection. But He was, was a staffer then, right? He was a staffer for Sam right. Brownback one of the members who brought down Lamar right. Smith's legal immigration reform. Sort and, of the gang of eight before it yeah. was known as that, right? Yeah, yeah and, and there's a really good Wired article about his heavy involvement in bringing down the legal immigration reform, but 
So, I, you know, I think before the Republican Study Committee, we uh, we must have debated on Interesting. Mr. Smith's bill and things like that. But I did not remember we debated. I think Mr. Goodlatte then asked him, oh, well, well who won the <laughs> debate? And uh, he looked at us, chuckled and said, our amendment prevailed, didn't it? So, And just for listeners, what this is about is back in 95, 96, there was one bill that had cuts in legal immigration and reforms that would tighten enforcement against illegal immigration. And what prevailed, what Paul Ryan as a staffer and Senator Spencer Abraham and, and uh, Sam Brownback and others, what they succeeded in doing was breaking the bill in two parts so that they could kill the legal immigration reforms, mm-hmm. but pass the illegal immigration part and show that they were really tough. I'm going to ask about that. My sense has always been, I never talked to Congressman Smith specifically about this, but as I understood it, there were actually elements in the 96 illegal immigration law that did pass and still on the books that were actually tougher than he would have preferred. But that was a kind of a tactic by those trying to keep legal immigration really high by killing the legal immigration cuts and saying, look, we're really tough in fighting illegal immigration. Mark, that is exactly the case. There was a infamous editorial in the Washington Times during that debate, calling Lamar Smith soft on criminal aliens. <laughs> you know, I think that was done by Senator Abraham's office. Interestingly, Ann Coulter worked for him at that point. Right. Although uh, she saw the light subsequently, but yeah. But yeah, it was for the exact reason you stated. There was a lot of fantastic provisions in that 96 bill, which had they been fully utilized, would have dramatically, in fact, did for a brief shining moment during the Trump administration, dramatically alter the equation at the border, the migrant protection protocols, which I was the heavily remain in, The Remain in Mexico program yeah, is how it's colloquially Mexico, known. Which I was heavily involved in uh, structuring in the, in the general counsel's office was based on a provision in the 96 bill, allowing for the temporary return of aliens who arrived from contiguous countries to wait in those countries while their removal hearings proceed. And right. When we got that up and running across the entire southwest border, that was the thing, you know, pre-COVID, obviously COVID changed everything, but that was the silver bullet that, in fact, dramatically reduced crossings across the southwest border. And had the Biden administration kept it in force, you know, now it's sort of a, a sort of perverse sort of world in which they're inviting back into the U.S., Everyone who received orders of removal because they didn't show up to their removal hearings uh, right. as they, they could have if they wanted to after they were subject to return to Mexico. But yeah, that, that was the thing that dramatically changed the situation for the better at the southern border for, right. again, a brief shining moment before, unfortunately, it's now uh, been abandoned it, right. by, yeah. by the current administration. So let's talk a little bit about the current situation down at the border. Do you see any possibility of Biden actually dealing with this surge at the border without using some of the tools that that had been in place under Trump? Without those tools, they can put how many ever billions of dollars into the economies of countries in Central America and whatever, but that is going to do little to nothing to alter the flow. The flow is largely based on perceptions, not always accurate, but largely often accurate, of the ease of being able to stay in the U.S. once you get here. Obviously, it's a horrible, dangerous journey to the U.S., fraught with sexual abuse and and death 
unfortunately, a lot of people are incentivized to take that journey because of the perceptions, which are now almost totally accurate, of their ability to remain in the U.S. and not in detention and just remain in the U.S. pretty much indefinitely. Actually, then the Washington Times just reported recently that the people that they're catching at the border and releasing without giving them what's called a notice to appear. It's like a immigration court equivalent of an indictment, sort of. And so if they don't show up to appear, then they're ordered deported so that they can be picked up any time. They're releasing, in many instances, people without even giving them that called NTA because I kind of sympathize with the Border Patrol. They're sort of Lucy in the Chocolate Factory. You know, they're just, I mean, they're just people are coming over and they're having to let them go. And so the Washington Times, following up on some congressional requests, said, okay, well, how many of those people are actually showing up? Because they have 60 days to turn themselves into ICE somewhere in the interior. And at least 80% of them seem to not be showing up at all. Surprise, surprise. I, just incredible. So it's, it's unfortunately, people are being incentivized to make that very dangerous journey because the smugglers are, it's worth the risk. are not, you know, they're not being inaccurate. There's some amount of puffery, but a lot of it's true about once you get to the U.S., it's the golden brick road. So let's get back to Congress. You've actually, in a sense, sort of been through more than just the three I mentioned. Under Trump, there was unsuccessful, but the push to get through a kind of dreamer amnesty, but adding a whole bunch of really necessary things to it. And then you were involved in the 90 Act, the 1990 Act, which was the last big increase in legal immigration. But my question is, how do you see and what are your thoughts about the various forces on the other side that you were up against? Because there's an odd bedfellows coalition, there's corporate people, there's ideological libertarians, there's left-wingers, there's ethnic chauvinist groups. Any kind of thoughts on how that works, how it could be dealt with? I don't know, just sort of any thoughts on the people on the other side. You know, the people on the other side from my bosses, they've always been there. They always will be there. I think the biggest change in how to strategically deal with them is, and how that's changed, is the decline in bipartisanship. It's, it's amazing to look back to 1995-96 when Lamar was chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee. The ranking, Republican from San yeah, Antonio. Yeah. The ranking Democrat, John Bryant, he shared a lot of Lamar Smith's views. And, you know, the interesting thing with, this is Bryant, who's the head Democrat, this is now 25 years ago, but worked with the Republicans. He was a union-oriented guy, mm -hmm. and that kind of blue-collar-oriented union worker Democrat, that doesn't really exist anymore. That's, I think, one of the reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think that was before the AFL-CIO and almost all the unions were basically co-opted mm -hmm. in terms of where are we going to get our new members, not what's in the best interest of our current members, but where are we going to get our new members in the future. But in the 96 bill, a majority of House Democrats voted for the illegal immigration reforms of that bill. They These voted are pro for enforcement it. measures. Yeah, yeah, in 1996, right. it passed with a majority of Democrat votes. The conference report went down to maybe about 40% of Democrat votes, but a majority of Democrat votes. Then it went down when Mr. Sensenbrenner's omnibus immigration enforcement bill passed the House. So this in was 2005. 05, 06, yeah, right. Like 18% of Democrats wow. voted for it. So, you know, the blue dog Democrats, the blue collar union Democrats were atrophying right. at that point. And then you get to Mr. Goodlatte's omnibus bill, uh, as, as you described it, 2018, right. zero 
House Democrats voted for it. So a majority, 25 years later, zero. And it's clear that, it wasn't, that's been the huge change. And it wasn't just Trump either, because like you said, in 2005, there are already far fewer Democrats voting mm-hmm. for enforcement. So in a sense, what you saw in 2018 was not just a sort of an exception because they were all worked up about Trump. It was part of a continuum. And actually, that's kind of an interesting question I wanted to ask you about the Gang of Eight thing, which was in the Senate. They sent it to the House. And you know, my sense has always been one of the reasons that the Speaker, John Boehner at the time, did not actually bring it up for a vote was because another member of leadership, Eric Cantor, lost a primary to Dave Bratt, and much of that was about immigration. And in a sense, that was prefiguring or foreshadowing of the reaction a lot of voters uh, had to Trump. In other words, that was kind of the first evidence, the first, if you will, a tremor of populism and specifically on immigration. What are your thoughts on that? What was the reaction when Cantor lost his primary? I think that's a really good point you make. I don't have firsthand information about why leadership's attitude changed, but I think based on what I've read and heard, very likely that Mr. Cantor's loss, as unfortunate as it was, really woke leadership and many members up to the power of the immigration issue. At least temporarily. Yeah. And then you read some of former Speaker Boehner's interviews when his book came out a few months ago, and he was bemoaning the fact that Bob Goodlatte wouldn't bend and Mr. Goodlatte wouldn't agree to amnesty. When you hear that too, it it sort of makes it quite likely things might have been very different had it not been for Eric Cantor's loss. Though even I remember we were always able to uh, count on Numbers USA's ability to shut down the phone lines in Congress and bring mass amnesty bills down. And Numbers might have been able to work this magic uh, that year too. But so it's been we never, to got, stop to, it we never you, got to that point. Yeah, you want to you avoid actually getting to that yeah, point. Because, yeah, because very possibly because of Mr. Cantor's loss. And actually, in 2007, even the New York Times wrote a whole story yeah. crediting Numbers USA with having stopped the amnesty bill. And infamously, they got so many citizens to call in, the Senate phone system collapsed. And the interesting thing, though, was, and I remember reading about this, by the time they got to the Gang of Eight bill, which is what, I mean, eight years later? Mm-hmm they made darn sure they invested in telephone technology that could not be overwhelmed no matter how many calls you sent to it. So the Senate leadership wasn't going to let that happen, either, or the congressional yeah. leadership. So anyway, the, the last thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is you left as chief counsel of the House Immigration Subcommittee staff and went over to DHS general counsel. You were there, what, two years, something like that? And, and sort of what did you see? How was that different from, obviously, it's different from being in the House Sort of what are your thoughts about that? Are you glad you did it? What did you learn? It was, you know, as Mae West once said, it was a bumpy ride. It was uh, certainly fast on my seatbelt, but I wouldn't have passed up the opportunity in a million years. You were there like the last two years or last year and a half? Yeah, uh, August 2018. I I wanted to see Mr. Goodlatte's immigration bill through before leaving. And so that was done that summer. And then, uh, you know, that and family situation, that became the good time to do it and went over to become deputy general counsel at DHS under John Mitnick, who later fell out of favor and, oh, was, really? and was fired. But it was wonderful working for him. And there's so much stuff that we got done, you know, working in conjunction with the Justice Department and Gene Hamilton and everyone over there. It was a wonderful experience. And then uh, August of 2020, 
I had two details. One detail was to help draft the provisions of Jared Kushner's immigration reform legislation, which unfortunately never was never uh, really introduced. Yeah, it was never right? actually yeah, introduced, never but it yeah. was a wonderful experience the summer of 2019 to help out the drafting of that. And then August 2020, I went over as the acting chief counsel at USCIS, which is the immigration benefits side. Visas and green cards. Visas, and that green kind of cards, stuff. things yeah. like that, which was another wonderful experience, uh, especially because myself and Art Arthur largely wrote was incorporated into the Homeland Security Act, the the legislation that broke up the INS, split it into enforcement and services. And, Back in 2003, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was going to be within the Justice Department, but once President Bush decided he wanted a Homeland Security Department or, you know, agreed to have a Homeland Security Department, all those principles got into there. And so sort of it's sort of fun to be the acting chief counsel of an entity that uh, you helped create. You had some role in, uh, <laughs> in creating. Other than with the Department of Interior many, many, many years ago, had never been in a federal agency and wasn't sure exactly what to expect of the career lawyers there, you know, based on everything I had heard. And what I can say is just talking about the people in the Office of General Counsel and at the Office of Chief Counsel at USCIS, just wonderful attorneys. I'm sure a lot of them did not share the president's views on a lot of immigration policy. But I never, really never had a problem. They always did wonderful work. They were professionals. They did to the best of their ability, incredible hours, getting stuff that we wanted done, getting it done right. There's no deep state sabotage or anything like that that you saw? Well, within the general counsel's office, okay. no. <laughs> uh, certainly, you know, asylum officers at USCIS were apparently uh, telling Hamad Aliz's I think that's how you pronounce his I name think, at yeah. BuzzFeed. This is the BuzzFeed uh, reporter. Yeah, yeah it's dropping like, a dime on you guys all the time. Yeah, yeah. in fact, I, you know, sometimes when I needed a document or something from USCIS <laughs> when I was deputy general counsel, just I, go to BuzzFeed. Know, yeah, I get it more quickly. <laughs> got to go to his Twitter feed than ha having to get it through the uh, get it through uh, USCIS. So, but in terms of the attorneys at DHS, I'm not talking about any other entity. Uh, I, you know, I just have very fond memories of their friendship, their professionalism, their expertise. They were. They were really, really good. So obviously it was a, especially the last few months, it was a, it was a difficult situation. And, you know, the, the whole thing with John Mitnick being dismissed was a difficult situation. And I have the utmost admiration for him, but I'm, I'm so glad I had the opportunity to so do that. So for my last question, let's say Governor DeSantis is nominated and wins and becomes president in 2025. I'm not asking you whether you would go back or anything. You're not going to make commitments like that now. But what would a possible DeSantis administration, what would you suggest for them to do in DHS sort of as their first couple of things? What would be their highest priority? You know, assuming there would be such administration, how much damage is done in the interim? Okay. That would have to be, you know, uh, you know, what the landscape is going to be. You know, going back to a, a lot of the things which we hit upon mid-administration, the return to Mexico, the, the asylum reform regulations, which have been held up in court, the public charge regulations held up in court until they were you know, abandoned by this administration. There's not much reinventing the wheel that has to be done. I think mid-Trump administration, as my wife sometimes says, you know, we found the special sauce mm -hmm. and it was all in place. And had it not been dismantled, I think the situation would be incredibly different today. And I think 
you know, again, hopefully it can be reestablished at some point. We'll see. Thank you. George Fishman has been our guest. Thanks for coming in, George. And thanks for coming in properly attired. Very much appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. When you've come to testify before, you had to stand up, raise your hand, and and take an oath to tell the truth. You didn't make me do that, so you... you well, that's true. You, you've been a very uh, very generous host. Well, I'm going to have to rethink that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm going to have to bring out a Bible and have people swear an oath that they're going to tell the truth on our podcast. I appreciate it, yeah. and th- thanks so much for inviting me. Well, thanks for coming. For my closing commentary, I wanted to talk about a report we just released at the Center at CIS.org on President Biden's second 100 days. It's become kind of a cliche to do a, a look at a new administration's first 100 days, a cliche we participated in. We did a report on this. It's kind of everybody has to. This is one of the many baleful legacies of the FDR administration. But the second 100 days is worth looking at too. What else has happened? And this report by Rob Law on our staff has a lot in it. I'm not going to go through all of it, but it really suggests to me not just that the Biden administration is continuing the policies that it pledged all along it was going to do, but that it has, for some reason, been surprised by the consequences of the first hundred days and seems to be kind of desperate looking around for ways to respond. For instance, at the Roughly 100-day mark was about the end of April, and border apprehensions were about 179,000 for that month, for the month of April. Well, for the month of July, which is close to the end of July, it's the beginning of August, roughly, is when the 200-day mark was. But we have stats, not full breakdown, but the general number for July, it was 213,000. I mean, it's up quite significantly from the 100-day mark, and maybe even more interesting, is that the source countries of this increasing wave of illegal aliens at the border are spreading out, are going global. Because in July, more than one out of four of all people arrested by the Border Patrol on the Mexican border were not from Mexico or Central America. This is a literally unprecedented development. A lot of them were from Haiti and Cuba, which is nearby, but they came by land. But also, for instance, El Salvador, which has always been considered one of the three countries in Central America, the so-called Northern Triangle countries that send most of the migrants from Central America. El Salvador was actually displaced by Ecuador. In other words, more illegal immigrants from Ecuador were arrested at the border in July than from El Salvador. Ecuador is 1,000 miles further south. And that's not even counting increasing number of people from Brazil. And as Todd Benzman on our staff has documented by talking to people, migrants in Central America, people from Africa and Asia and Europe and all over now. In other words, the word has gotten out so that in Biden's second 100 days, the border crisis has gotten worse, both in the number of people that are surging across the border and the increasing number of countries that are sending people. There's only so many root causes you can fix. You know, 
even if magically we could fix Central America, what are we going to fix Ecuador to? Are we going to fix Mauritania? It exposes the unreality of the administration's border policy. Among the other things that Rob Law remarked on in his second 100 days report is that not only did the Biden administration the first 100 days end what's called the Migration Protection Protocols, those are the rules that informally are referred to as remain in Mexico, so that if you sneak across the border and make an asylum claim, you're in the queue, you get a hearing, but you have to wait in Mexico for your hearing date. The point being to not just let people go in the United States, in which case, you know, we may very well never see them again. That was in the first 100 days. Well, in the second 100 days, among other things, this administration announced that people who had been in that Remain in Mexico program and had been ordered deported would be able to try again, would have a second bite at the apple, would be actually be able to come into the United States after having been deported and apply for asylum. This uh, is consistent with the unofficial motto of the immigration lawyers, which is, it ain't over till the alien wins. And the sort of smell of desperation from the administration became pretty overpowering in this second 100 days. And when you look at the responses that the administration made to the border crisis, and this is not something Rob went into, but on the one hand, the administration really sees the actual problem at the border as being one of more quickly and comfortably processing the increasing number of illegal immigrants coming across the border. In other words, it's not stopping the flow, it's facilitating the flow. On the other hand, you know, they are politicians, they, they're not idiots, and they realize that immigration is the one area where the administration is in serious hot water with public opinion. And so they've had a variety of responses. They're kind of floundering. And we saw a lot of that floundering in the second 100 days. For instance, sending Vice President Harris to Guatemala and Mexico, and then after that to the border, sort of, to visit the port of entry at El Paso, which was a complete disaster. I mean, the whole thing was a fiasco. Even the mainstream media that is quite sympathetic to the administration went after Vice President Harris. She had a terrible interview during her visit to Guatemala and Mexico. In a sense, sort of we're living inside an episode of Veep, and Vice President Harris is playing the lead role. So that root causes talk that the administration is using as part of their spin for responding to public concern over the border has become kind of a punchline. The administration, again, in the second 100 days, released both a blueprint and a strategy, that's what they called them, to deal with the border. There was a broad blueprint to deal with the border in general, and then a strategy to deal with root causes, or it may have been the other way around. It really doesn't matter because it's just spin. There was nothing really substantive. And one thing they did start doing again and this isn't really something new. This is something more just that they're allowing the Border Patrol at least a little bit of leeway to do its job, is they have started, at least with a few people, doing what they call lateral and interior repatriation. 
And that's just a kind of jargony way of saying that the lateral part is that if they catch someone on one part of the border, occasionally they will return them to a different section of the border. The point being to break up the smuggling networks and smuggling relationships. There's nothing new about this. Border Patrol has been doing it for 50, maybe even 100 years. But this administration was not allowing it and is doing it now and trying to pretend that it's kind of a big deal. Likewise, with interior repatriation, which is to say, especially with regard to people from Mexico or pass through Mexico, you fly them back into the interior or maybe even all the way to the southern border of Mexico, rather than just push them across our border, meaning they can just try again. They're doing, at least on some limited level, both of these strategies or tactics, really, that the Border Patrol has used for decades but hasn't really been allowed to use under this administration. They're uh, good as far as they go. There's nothing wrong with it. But until the genuine root cause of the disaster at the border, which is to say the president's presence in the Oval Office, until that changes, none of these floundering responses by the administration are going to do any good. So in the first hundred days, we saw bold action to comply and to follow through with the agenda that the administration had run on, what can empirically be described as a radical immigration agenda. The second hundred days, they're now getting more than they bargained for, although everybody told them this was going to happen. Nonetheless, they do seem to have been surprised, and they're floundering in desperation, looking for some way to respond. It'll be interesting to see in the third 100 days, I don't know, we probably won't do a report, but we will keep an eye on it, and maybe we will, whether the administration actually is able to get a handle on any of this, which I seriously doubt, or whether we're going to see a continuing spinning out of control, both practically at the border and also politically with regard to the public perception of the administration's failure to deal with immigration. This is Mark Krikorian signing off for parsing immigration policy. I hope you'll join us next week for our next episode. Thank you.